I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. A lot of the short-term rental listings aren't even in English. (laughs) And so... You know, I did a couple of searches myself on my own in both Korean as well as Chinese. But I just, you know, did a quick short-term rental search and found multiple listings. Tammy Kim knew her city had a problem. Too many short-term rentals, like Airbnb, not enough homes for everyone else. So she cracked down. Guess what happened next? Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Hundreds of thousands of short-term rentals have popped up across Canada in the last decade. Can restricting them bring down costs for everyone and help the housing crunch? And Tammy Kim City, the answer is yes. Also today, have you ever gone to buy something but left because the checkout line was too long? For stores... That's money out the door. And it's the one buying decision they don't want us to make. But first, this country hasn't had to worry about the national debt in a while. It's been nice. Now, debt is back. But can we handle it? Canada just set a dubious record. The amount we spend on interest for the national debt is now $4.3 billion. That's a month. And it beats the previous high set in 1995. Yes? 1995! You remember the mid-90s. Baggy Jeans, The OJ Trial, Pamela Anderson married Tommy Lee, Braveheart won the Oscar. And in Canada, the big political story was also the biggest story for the economy. The national debt. Canada spent decades racking up debt in the hundreds of billions. We got to the 90s, and those chickens came home to roost. David Walker remembers it well. I was a member of parliament from Winnipeg, Winnipeg North Centre. After the 93 election, we formed the government, and I became Paul Martin's parliamentary secretary in the Department of Finance. He was parliamentary secretary for Jean Chrétien's Liberals. His first job was to borrow money so the government could function. Interest on the national debt was eating up nearly 40 cents out of every dollar of government revenue. Chrétien and Finance Minister Paul Martin were taking heat from all sides. 
at home and around the world. The pinnacle of that was the Wall Street Journal in January 1995 said, Canada, welcome to the third world of disheveled democracy sort of thing, you know, like, and that really hurt these guys to think that, that internationally, their reputation was being tied into third world countries not able to manage their debt. The Wall Street Journal called the Canadian dollar the northern peso. Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, knew they had to do something. And so they started cutting spending. Deeply. They cut employment insurance. They cut transfer payments to provinces. They laid off thousands of federal workers. David Walker describes himself as being on the left of the Liberal Party. He didn't get into politics to slash spending. I did feel people's uh, anguish and insecurity in their lives. So I had a an ear for what I thought would be, that's enough, you know, because that's going to be very harmful to people. But we got to some basic issues like family allowance and taking apart family allowance. And I remember Paul taking me aside, David, can you live with this? And I said, well, it won't last forever in the Liberal Party. You know, we'll, we, we will somehow or another find a way to look after children. And that's not my job right now with you. My job is, you know, is that... Is that worth the money and the risk? The risk of piling up more debt was hard to ignore. They were staring at interest payments spiraling even higher. If that happened, they'd have less money to pay for everything else. Foreign lenders were giving us a side eye. It was a road to ruin that Canada wanted to get off. It wasn't easy, but we did. And the debt monster faded into the background. Finance Minister Krista Freeland's latest economic update has woken it up. Interest payments on the federal debt next year will be $46 billion. That's more than double what it was pre-pandemic. And for a country not that far removed from the 90s, $46 billion in interest is feeling a bit too much like a replay. So if we pull out the old worry meter, how does our national debt measure up? We're still well below the dark days of the 1990s when uh, Canada uh, started struggling to actually uh, be able to sell government of Canada bonds. Uh, we're not nearly in that situation. In fact, uh, not only is the... Randall Bartlett is an economist at Desjardins, a Montreal-based financial services company. Remember that in the 90s, almost 40 cents out of every dollar the government raised went to paying for the debt. When you look at where we are today, it's... Um, much closer to around 10 cents of every dollar raised is going to go to service the debt. And so while it's higher than it was back in, say, 2021, 2022, at the same time, it's actually below the level it was at in the first decade of the 21st century and uh, at about a quarter of the level uh, it was at back in the 1990s. So that's comforting. But $46 billion is still... $46 $46 billion. I think we could be spending a lot of that money on, uh, on much better things that Canadians would prefer than, uh, than servicing the debt. The cost of servicing the debt is now among the biggest items in the federal budget. And just to compare, the Canadian military gets about $28 billion. The Canada Child Benefit, which sends checks to families with kids, that costs $26 billion. So $46 billion on debt is real money. And it comes with real worries. 
if spending continues, you hit a rough patch in the economy, but interest rates remain elevated or go up even higher, you can end up in a vicious cycle of rising debt levels as a share of the economy. And so what you want to do is make sure to get ahead of that, that you plan to consistently bring down uh, your level of debt as a share of GDP in order to uh, in order to ensure that you have create that fiscal room for yourself in case of some unforeseen circumstances. Before the pandemic, Canada was in pretty good financial shape. That allowed the feds to borrow money for stuff like CERB. And did we borrow? The national debt went from $700 billion to $1.2 trillion. And as a double whammy, interest rates are now up to 5%, making all that debt that much more expensive. Debt can be in the eye of the beholder. Cutting spending comes with trade-offs. Fewer services, harder times for people who really could use a break. But borrowing is also risky. Keep piling on the debt, and that $46 billion just keeps going higher. Randall Bartlett is watching how much debt we have relative to the size of our economy. It's a measure known as the debt-to-GDP ratio. Our economy today is much bigger than it was in, say, the 90s. That's why paying $46 billion isn't causing a national crisis. He says the debt-to-GDP number looks manageable, but it is creeping higher. My concern is that any sort of credibility around uh, eventually bringing down the debt as a share of the economy is you know, subject to significant skepticism because of the fact that it's just we don't see it in the fiscal plans because every new fiscal plan leads to much more spending and a sustained uh, rise in the debt to GDP ratio, even if, it's, uh, even if it's only modest. And I think if they continue doing that and we end up in a situation where we get a significant economic shock, then uh, that could spell trouble for debt dynamics in Canada. Here's a worst-case scenario. Ottawa keeps spending, and then we get a recession. The economy stops growing, that shrinks government revenues, but interest rates stay high. So servicing the debt gets more expensive. But we have less money, so we need to keep borrowing. That kind of perfect storm is why the real debt hawks want to see government spend less, not more. Here's the happier news. Compared to other countries, our debt situation, it's not so bad. Interest rates are holding steady, but next year they are expected to fall. If that happens, all this debt gets cheaper. If things play out like that... I do think Canada can handle where the debt at, is at right now. I think uh, when you look at uh, where, how well Canada's positioned internationally, when you look at how well Canada's positioned relative to history, Canada is what I like to call the, uh, the cleanest dirty shirt in the fiscal closet. As long as the economy keeps growing and we don't slide into a nasty recession, Randall says he's cautiously optimistic. David Walker, the former Winnipeg MP, who was on the hill for the 90s debt crisis, he says he's optimistic by nature. But when the national debt goes up, the thing that comes into his mind? Don't take lightly. Don't take this shortage of cash lightly because it can really haunt you. Don't take it lightly because the only rerun from the 90s we want to watch is Friends.
On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrude. We don't really like to stand around. We got places to go, things to do, people to see. So waiting in a long queue can be the last thing we need. Our producer, Ellis Cho, says stores know that. And what they don't want is a lineup to stop us from buying. You're at the mall, and you found the perfect gifts for the people on your list. And there's a lineup at the till with only two cashiers. Then one of them goes on a break. What do you do? I would not wait in a lineup for more than five minutes. I'm generally impatient on a lot of things. <laughs> the only time I'll usually wait in a lineup if it looks like it's passing by quickly or if like it's really, really desperate. Otherwise, I will usually not wait. I'll kind of move on to the next thing. An Interact survey from a few years ago shows that more than half of Canadians won't go near a store if it has a long lineup. And that was before the pandemic. Sam Malio says people are even more impatient today. He's a marketing professor at the University of Toronto who specializes in consumer psychology. The pace of modern life keeps accelerating. If you look at historical trends, people are walking faster now than they used to. We just want to get more done with our time, and our time is becoming more and more of a precious resource. We want things fast, and when that doesn't happen, it can cost retailers a lot of money. In that same survey, 75% of Canadians said they walked away from a purchase because of a long lineup. If it's uh, you know a retailer perpetually has lineups that they become notorious for, then shoppers will pick other locations. David Ian Gray is a retail advisor with Dig360 Consulting in BC. And I think any good retailer uh, really wants to avoid that, but they also don't want to become known as a place that's hard to shop when there's other alternatives. So businesses are always looking for ways to cut the queue. Everything from hiring more staff over the holidays to replacing them. Welcome. Please scan your first item. With self-checkout. They're already a feature at grocery stores and hardware stores, but high-tech self-checkout machines are now showing up at fashion retailers like Uniqlo and Zara. Customers just toss their clothes in a bin, and seconds later, the prices show up on a screen. I think it's kind of nice because you're in and you're out fast. There's no lineups. No lineups? That's the dream. But not always the reality. So Sam Malio says retailers need to manage wait times by managing expectations. Customers don't mind lineups as long as they know what's coming. Because when you are unexpectedly robbed of your time, it's very frustrating. People also expect the lineup to be fair. No butting in, first come, first served, and... Time never drags longer than when you have nothing to do. Distraction is key, even if it's a winding aisle filled with impulse buys. I mean, who doesn't need a bag of gummy bears from a company you've never heard of? 
Then, Sam says, there's always your phone. Or better yet, get to know the guy behind you. Look at what someone else has in their basket. And say, like, oh, I didn't know that Costco sold that. Maybe next time I come, I'll get, hey, dude, what, what aisle was that in? Right? So every negative moment could be an opportunity to turn into a positive moment. For The Cost of Living, I'm Ellis Cho. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Blame for Canada's housing problems has been cast far and wide, from low interest rates to foreign buyers. On the main culprit, most people now seem to agree, is just a lack of homes. But that doesn't mean everything else is off the hook. Airbnb will have to abide by the city's new rules on short-term rentals. New rules for short-term rentals in Halifax are now in effect. Well, BC's housing affordability crisis has prompted movement from the province, tabling legislation that restricts short-term rentals designed to put more of those units back into the long-term rental market. Ottawa is starting to crack down on short-term rentals. It's changing tax rules and will spend millions helping cities and towns enforce stricter regulations. It wasn't that long ago, though, Daniel Nerman, that Airbnb was just kind of this neat new thing. It was part of the sharing economy. You could use it, save a few bucks in a hotel room. I mean, I always stay at Airbnbs because they're everywhere. I, I, I once found one in Spill Machine, of all places. I've actually been there. It's really little. <laughs> no, you haven't. I have. It's near Radium, BC. It's pretty. Yeah, it's the one. Yeah. Very charming. Um, a Desjardins study, though, that came out this week says we maybe have too many short-term rentals. It tallied up all the listings across Canada on Airbnb and Verbo and found more than 235,000 units. That is like a mid-sized city. It is. It is nearly 5% of Canada's long-term rental stock. Well, we know the country needs more housing. We do. But this problem is complicated, and, and critics say this explosion of short-term rentals, is, it's just making things worse. They say Airbnbs and Verbos, they, they drive rent up, and if we reduce the number of them out there, if we had less of them, prices would go down. Yes, yeah, so that's just like a supply-demand argument. It makes sense. But really, there hasn't been any hard evidence to support that idea until now. New research published in the Journal of Real Estate Economics looked at whether restricting Airbnbs actually has an impact on rent prices. Do they go up or do they go down? The study poured over data from the city of Irvine, California. Irvine, near Disneyland. Yeah, Orange County, the OC, close to the beaches like Laguna, Newport, not very far from L.A. And so Irvine, they, they get a lot of tourists. And a couple years ago, the Airbnb situation was getting out of hand. Like, you know, crazy house parties in quiet neighborhoods, trash everywhere. And then the big problem, affordability. Real estate and rent prices, they just kept going up. 
It's a domino effect. You know, one thing impacts the next, that impacts the next. And next thing you know, we're dealing with quality of life issues. Tammy Kim is the vice mayor of Irvine. And in 2018, the city said, that's it. No more short-term rentals. They banned them all. Anything under a month, forget about it. So what happened? Uh, Not so much at first. Like a lot of cities that have tried bringing in restrictions for Airbnbs, short-term rentals, um, people find a way around them. It's like playing whack-a-mole a a lot of times. So people will find loopholes like a host will use a different city. They'll use the adjacent city that's right next to us. And they will then use that as their listing, but it's not in that location. This is so sneaky. So they're, they're listing their Airbnb in a different city that maybe doesn't have the same restrictions mm-hmm. and then just renting out their place and in, in where they actually are. And this went on for about a year. And then Irvine Council was like, okay, we got to get serious. So they launched a short-term rental smackdown. They hired a software company to scour the internet for every short-term rental listing. And that, Paul, was the magic bullet. Why? The software does the detective work. So there's so many places where people post rental listings. It's not just the platforms like Airbnb and Verbo. There's Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace. So it's really hard to keep on top of all those websites. It, it just becomes too much work for city staff. So Irvine handed that work over. And then Tammy Kim took it to the next level. What city staff didn't recognize and that I did recognize Um, perhaps as an Asian American myself, is um, a lot of the short-term rental listings aren't even in English. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I did a couple of searches myself on my own in both Korean as well as Chinese, but I just, you know, did a quick short-term rental search and found multiple listings. After that, the city of Irvine directed the software company to, to start looking for listings in other languages. And what did that turn up? It sniffed out the sneaky McSneakersons. Uh, in 2019, there were 1,200 illegal short-term listings. Uh, the software program tracked every single one down, gave them a warning, said, you know, you can't do this. you got to comply, either make the listing a long-term listing or take it down. And a year later, they were almost all gone. Okay, so then what did that do for renters? The study found rent prices dropped by 3%, nearly $115 a month. Huh, and this is a study you're saying that actually has found that cracking down on short-term rentals actually does matter to rent prices. It does, if you enforce the rules. And cities are starting to recognize this. The software company that Irvine hired, it's called Host Compliance. It's now working in more than 500 jurisdictions, and 40 of them are in Canada. What kind of places? Charlottetown, Winnipeg, Regina, Revelstoke. The first city in Canada to hire Host Compliance was Nelson, B.C. So nine years ago, Nelson had the lowest vacancy rate in the province. Like, there was nowhere to live. So the city brought in restrictions for short-term rentals and started using this surveillance software. Today, Nelson has almost 100% compliance. All right. But what happens if someone doesn't comply? Well, they get in trouble. They have to pay. And that's the other part of this. In Nelson, the fines are high, up to $500 a day. In Irvine, if you break the rules once, it'll cost you $1,500. 
break them twice, and you have to pay three grand. And they've taken repeat offenders to court and won. But in places where fines are too low... We have seen that it is very, very lucrative for them to continue operating illegally. Um, so we have seen jurisdictions that didn't want to levy too large of a fine. So a $50 or a $75 fine. Um, that very quickly becomes just a cost of doing business when people are commanding you know, several hundred dollars a night for a guest. That's Graham Dempster. He's with Host Compliance out of Waterloo, Ontario. So all of this is coming pretty hard at the Airbnbs of the world. Like, yeah. what do they have to say about it? Well, they don't think it's the right approach. Yeah, I bet they don't. The company argues that for a lot of people, having a basement suite is the only way they can afford a house. They're, they're mortgage helpers. And restrictions on short-term rentals, that's going to take that income away and make housing less affordable. Airbnb says the real problem is chronic underproduction of housing. Well, yeah, we know we need to build more houses. And that is actually something everyone agrees on. But that takes time. Restricting short-term rentals, it's something governments can tackle right away. It's like the low-hanging fruit. Well, it is, but, you know, how low-hanging is it? Because if you're in Irvine, California, and Nelson, B.C., it still takes, you know, it feels like a fair chunk of effort to chase all this down. Yeah, you got to put in the work and that takes money. It's money for policing, city staff, you know, helping monitor this this situation. And and Irvine pays 25 bucks for every listing found up to 25,000 a year. But Tammy Kim, the city's vice mayor, says it's money well spent. Yes, it's not cheap. However, when you don't eradicate the problem of short-term rentals, the situation will be much worse. Now, Tammy Kim is running for mayor, and she thinks this is an issue that resonates with voters. When you talk about the role of a municipal government um, ensuring that residents have a place to live, there's that philosophical and ethical and moral responsibility. We can't vote for her in Canada, but it does feel like more cities and towns up here are coming around to exactly the kind of thinking that that, that she's come to. Yeah, it does. All right. Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. Coming up on next week's show, once upon a time, Amazon was going to run bookstores out of business. Then it was Kindles, e-readers. It turns out, the death of your local bookstore could be exaggerated. So we carry everything from fantasy, contemporary, young adult, sports romance, dark romance, and also monster romance. Please define. (laughs) Monster romance is basically anyone that's not really human. Yes. No one is human in it, or...? Um, No, I would say at least one of the characters can be human, but... At least one of them is definitely not human. (laughs) I don't think I should say, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Racy. Plucky bricks-and-mortar bookstores selling their monster romance like hotcakes. That's next week. Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. 
I'm Paul Haberstrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.